Are you also tired of one-size-fits-all weight loss plans? Meet Noom, the personalized solution that meets you where you are. Noom is able to understand your unique needs, from dietary restrictions to medical concerns. Unlike restrictive programs, Noom embraces your lifestyle and choices. Discover a sustainable approach to weight loss, tailored just for you. Honestly, Noom felt like it was made for me. It's not just about what I eat. It's about understanding why. With Noom, I've learned so much about myself and built healthier habits that stick. It's all about progress, not perfection. Say goodbye to restrictive diets and experience the Noom app for yourself with personalized lessons and expert coaching. Noom's psychology and biology-based approach has helped over 5.2 million people achieve their goals. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Welcome to episode number 13. On this episode, we talk Project Car of the Week, listener stories, our new movie and TV Mopar segment called High Performance Parts, and then we close the show talking about the $100 Hemi I bought and what I plan to do with it. Wait, what? $100 Hemi? That's right, I said $100 Hemi, don't go anywhere, you're tuned into the best Mopar enthusiast-driven podcast on planet Earth, and I'm your host Chris Albrecht, better known as the Mopar Hunter, and this is Talking Mopars. You're listening to Talking Mopars with the Mopar Hunter, your direct connection to all things Mopar. Firing on all cylinders once again here on Talking Mopars. I know that $100 Hemi sounds kind of clickbaity, but it's true that I actually nabbed one up for $100, and you're going to hear all about it later in this episode. We also have high-performance parts again this week, which is the new weekly segment where we briefly talk about a Mopar from movie and or TV history, and I think this segment is a good addition to the show. But hey, enough with the small talk, let's get this show on the road. For Project Car of the Week, we are spotlighting two projects that are somewhat similar for two very different prices, and we kick around the pros and cons of each car and then we ultimately decide on which one takes the honors of Project Car of the Week. So let's go over the cars. Up first, we have a Mist Green 1968 Plymouth Sports Satellite for $4,400 in Lenexa, Kansas that has definitely seen better days, but it is still very much savable, so let's, let's get into the ad. 1968 Plymouth Satellite. Odometer shows 70,000 miles, title status is clean, and it has an automatic transmission. Project Car Complete Original. Runs. Frame good. Needs left quarter and front floor patches. No trades, please. I don't recommend driving due to bad gas and brakes being old. Okay, so what we have is a 318-powered satellite that runs but doesn't drive. Fuel system and brakes need to be gone through, and there's quite a bit of metal work to be done. Looking at the photos, you can see the car needs a lot of work. So you tune it up, get it safely running and driving, and you have a car that runs and drives but still needs a lot of metal work. The picture looking inside the trunk has a rust hole big enough to stick a leg through, so that's a problem. Uh, the car does look good, pretty complete. Um, you're going to need a battery and all the basic tune-up parts because you're going to want to go through this thing mechanically before you, you know, take it out on the road. It's a column-shifted automatic with a split bench seat, and overall, I would say that this car is absolutely savable. 
and a low price of 4400 This car would be an excellent choice for someone who wants a B-body Mopar without completely breaking the bank. Perfect for the hobbyist do-it-yourself enthusiast who wants to learn and do a lot of the work themselves. These projects are great, and if you have the skills or you want to learn the skills, these types of cars are perfect for that. Um, I say this because being a sports satellite, although a higher trim level than the Roadrunner we are putting it up against today, in the grand scheme of things and collectability, it does fall under a Roadrunner. So that's both a good and a bad thing. Good because the entry level into a satellite versus a Roadrunner is generally cheaper depending on condition, of course. And it's bad because if you invest too much, it may take a very long time to ever see a good return on investment if you ever decide to sell the car. But if you're looking just for you know, a car to have fun with and you're not considering the investment aspect by all means, you can start here for under five grand and have yourself a great project car. So I would say that this sport satellite is a great buy. Does it need a lot of work? Sure. But it's a great entry level project car. So let's take a look at the competition vying for this week's spot as project car of the week. The other car is a 1968 Plymouth Roadrunner in Modesto, California for $17,500. That is coincidentally the same year and the same mist green color as the satellite. So that makes this comparison a little more interesting. So let's review the ad. 1968 Plymouth Roadrunner title status clean. 1968 Plymouth Roadrunner 383 automatic power steering, local car original 383 HP engine, four barrel manifolds and dual exhaust, new correct seat covers, original build sheet, replacement data tag, factory certicard, history docks back to the original owner, Solid floors under the original carpet. Starts, runs, drives, and stops. Excellent project that you can enjoy now. Typical California rust, pack window, trunk floor, lower quarters. Replacement sheet metal pieces included, plus extra restoration parts. No emails, no text, no trades. Okay, so the biggest difference, aside from the difference in trim levels, is the price. The satellite is listed at $4,400, and the Roadrunner at $17,500. Here's where the Roadrunner starts to lead the race. It has the original 383, the build sheet, the CERTA card, and documentation leading back to the original owner. The biggest problem with the Roadrunner is that it has a replacement fender tag, which I'm assuming is a reproduction. Much like the satellite, this Roadrunner needs metalwork, but the seller is including the replacement parts plus more. This car also has a leg up on the satellite because, according to the seller, it runs, drives, and stops. It also is a Roadrunner, which is widely considered more desirable than a satellite and definitely more collectible. So the question is, is the Roadrunner worth $13,000 more than the satellite? $13,100 to be exact, assuming that you pay the full dollar amount. In my opinion, you know it is. The Roadrunner is a car that you could, if we are to assume that what the seller is saying is true, pay the money and drive away. The satellite needs work to get to that point. So if we were to break this comparison down to raw facts, it's a non-operational project car versus a running and driving project car. So it comes down to a couple factors. Do you want a car that is a project until you get it safely running and driving? Or do you want a project that you can jump in and at least drive home? Not to mention the fact that you can enjoy the car as you work on it. And then, of course, there is the desirability between a sports satellite and a roadrunner from a collectability and investment standpoint. So I guess it all boils down to what you are personally looking for in a project car. For me, it's as simple as you know, I have experience with a project that was not drivable when purchased and a project that was drivable. And from this experience, I can tell you that 
in my opinion, a project that you can enjoy immediately is worth the extra cash spent. The other factors like the extra parts and from what I gather, a little bit more of a complete project that you obviously can drive away is worth the extra 10 grand and that's why I'm willing to spend the extra money. You might disagree and you would rather spend less on a bigger project that needs more work and that's okay too because as enthusiasts, we will never see eye to eye on everything. Maybe a full-blown project is more appealing to you if you can save $13,000 and put that extra cash directly into the car to get it back on the road and possibly have some money left over to play with. For me, the Roadrunner wins this comparison because of the fact that it's a Roadrunner and that makes it a better investment opportunity should I ever have to sell it in the future. And I can drive it home. I like the idea of a project that I can drive home upon purchase so I can enjoy it as I work on it. But that's just me and my own personal opinion. Uh, in conclusion, the project car of the week for episode number 13 is the Roadrunner. So which one would you choose? That's my question for you. But if I were to try to make a deal on this Roadrunner, you know, he's asking seventeen five. I would like to get it like fourteen or 15000 that's where I would like to be on this car. But, you know, I might be crazy. I may be lowballing them, but that's where I would want to be to feel comfortable. 17.5 is a lot of money. And there are other cars out there that you can buy that you don't have to put so much work into for, you know, around $20,000. So that's another thing to consider. But, you know, we're not putting those kind of cars in this category. We're pitting a project versus another project, one being more expensive and the other needing a little bit more work. So, that's what we're playing with on this episode. So again, which one would you choose and how much would you be willing to pay? I know some of you guys out there will probably be thinking, oh, you know, I'd take the Roadrunner, but I'd only pay 1500 bucks. <laughs> you know, you get a lot of that, especially on the Mopar Hunter page. Some of the prices that you guys think these cars should be worth, and I, I also think they should be worth that, but, you know, it's not the 80s or 90s anymore. You know, we're going to have to pay a little bit of money. You know, you got to pay to play. So keep that in mind. But I do think that you can get a good project for right around ten to 15000 You just have to be patient. So I've said it before, you know, be patient and the right car will come along. So again, which one would you choose? Because my money is on the Roadrunner. It's time once again for high performance parts. This segment is a new addition to the show, and it's about Mopars that have both big and small parts in film and television. If you're anything like me, you are always quick to point out Mopars in movies and on TV, and that's what this segment is all about. So this week's high-performance part belongs to the 1968 Dodge Charger in the 1998 film Blade, starring Wesley Snipes as Blade, a vampire-human hybrid that is known as the Daywalker because, unlike traditional bloodsuckers, he is not vulnerable to the sun or ultraviolet rays. I'll save you the time and not do a full synopsis or review the movie, but it is one that I enjoy, especially because Snipes' character, Blade, drives a black 1968 Charger with a fiberglass six-pack hood and what looks like old centerline auto-drag wheels staggered for that aggressive look that we all love. In the movie, it sounds like it has a nice chop to the idle, so we can also assume it's got a nice cam in it. It's a cool car, and I believe it's had a small role in most, if not all, of the Blade films, and in one of the later films, the character named Scud, played by Norman Reedus, who also plays Daryl on The Walking Dead, is helping Blade make some modifications to it. So if you haven't seen the car, check out the movie Blade. And for the record, my favorite year of the Dodge Charger was 1968. And that remains one of my favorite Mopars of all time. So 
I uh, love this new segment of high performance parts because it's going to allow us to, you know, take a little trip back in memory lane because a lot of these cars were featured in movies of the past and TV shows of the past. So that's going to be fun. And then, you know, I've noticed that a lot of the newer movies, you know, the Marvel movies and, you know, just a lot of the Fast and Furious movies, especially too, um, they all feature a lot of modern Mopars. So, you know, as a Mopar enthusiast, that's always cool to see no matter how crazy these movies get. I mean, we all watch them and we're like, okay, that's very unrealistic. That would never happen in real life. You know, and we sit there and we judge the movie, even though, hey, it's a movie. <laughs> I try to remain, you know, open-minded. Like when I, I remember the first Fast and the Furious, when the first Fast and the Furious came out, I was young, I was in high school and imports were really big at the time. So it was a cool movie to go and see and we're watching it. And then the scene where Dominic Toretto you know, opens his little shed, his little garage in the backyard, and he's in there tinkering with the 1970 Dodge Charger. I was like, yes, yes, this is what it's about right here. Now the game has changed. And it was really sad when he rolls it in the end of the movie. But throughout the whole Fast and the Furious series, you know, of films, you see a lot of pretty cool Mopars. So, you know, my hat's off to those guys. They, uh, they like their Mopars, and I can tell. And rumor was that the, 69 Daytona in, I forget which movie it was, if it was Fast Five or the sixth installment, I forget which one, but there's a 69 Daytona that has the wing shortened and the nose cone shortened a little bit, and it's Toretto's car, and that's a really cool car. I'm really happy that they brought in a wing car for one of the movies, but rumor has it that it was inspired by Big Willie. Because, you know, Dom was king of the underground street racing scene, and that's kind of what Big Willie was at the time, you know, running his King Daytona, which I talked about on the last episode, on episode 12, the first installment of High Performance Parts. I talked about the opening scene of Blacktop, or excuse me, of Two-Lane Blacktop, where the first car you see is Big Willie's uh, 69 Daytona getting ready to street race. You know, that was a cool ode to the old school street racing of Southern California. Again, hats off to the guys who make the Fast and the Furious franchise. That's, you know, as crazy as those movies are, it's really cool that they have a lot of cool Mopars in them. So that's that. That's this week's installment of High Performance Parts. And we'll see what next week brings. This week's listener story was sent in by Lon about his A12 Roadrunner. Here is Lon's story. My story with the car starts in April of 1987. I'd wanted a liftoff hood car for some time and couldn't get the uncle of a friend of mine to move off of the 13,000 mile R4 red liftoff hood roadrunner he had. My wait wasn't long as one came up for sale in the local paper. I was the first caller and set up a time to go see it in the same night. When I got there, I verified it had an M in the fifth digit of the VIN. It still had its original hood. Air cleaner assembly was gone. It was painted a color I didn't think was available. It had a goofy colored interior and found the car to be very solid, but it had a junk 402 barrel in the hole. The owner still had the intake and carbs, but the carbs looked like fuzzy white balls from when he had left them in a floor-level cabinet during a flooding rain. I decided to make an offer to him since I thought $4,000 was too much. We finally settled on $3,800 and made arrangements to pick it up the next night. Thankfully, he was a man of his word, as he had 42 other calls on the car, some offering above his asking price. I picked the car up 
and we head over to my cousin's Chrysler dealership to do the title work, and this is where he gives me the bad news. The car isn't titled in his name, but he and his now ex-wife's name. He had forgotten to have her sign off on the title during the divorce. Ah! I asked him if he'll give me most of my money back. Him keeping a grand as a down payment, I'll take the car back, and he says no. Seems he needed to pay the lawyer right now and needed all the cash. Thankfully, the notary says she can notarize a bill of sale between us to make the deal binding while he gets the title straightened out. Man, that was a nervous two weeks. During that two weeks, I did a little research on the A12 cars and found that during the second batch, 426 schedule production date, that were built, that any Roadrunner color was available versus only seven colors during first 329 scheduled production date run, and any available Roadrunner interior could also be had. Now that the car was in my name officially, 5-4-1987, I tore into it. The 400 came out, the interior came out, along with a nice broadcast sheet, and it headed for the paint shop. Once prepped, the engine compartment was shot, and I received a call. You have to come see this. The paint came out green. I got there to see that it was definitely green, but said let's wait to see what it dries down to. After 24 hours, it dried down to the proper shade of A4 Platinum Silver. After the car gets back, I go about getting it back together. For a 440, I used a 13,000-mile engine out of a 69 New Yorker that I had gone through, adding only a purple shaft cam, one step up from a resto cam, and an oil pan and pickup from Ed Hamburger, since I couldn't find the right one. I used the original Edelbrock intake, and for carbs, I used a set that my dad had lying around. For a breather, I ended up finding one at a swap meet for $450. Thought that was a terrible price at the time. The interior is all original, except for the carpet. Now come the time for the exhaust and this is where things come to a standstill. I ended up going through three H-pipes only to find out that no one was making one that fit. The third pipe gets cut into three pieces and put in a corner. That's the way the car sat for the next 13 years while real life intervened. Come July 2004, there is talk on the A12 restoration forum over on moparts.org of a reunion of the A12 cars at the All Chrysler Nationals in Carlisle 2005. This is the springboard for me to start the work necessary to finish the car. One of my best friends and former employees says he'll wet sand and buff the car if I'll get the rest finished. Well, the car makes it to Carlisle, but it isn't totally finished, as even cut into three pieces, the H-pipe still doesn't fit. Back from Carlisle, I decide I want to go to the pure stock muscle car drag race in Stanton, Michigan. I get a 304 stainless exhaust system from the Stainless Works. Mufflers are Dynomax Ultraflows. Its debut at PSMCDR is less than spectacular as I had issues with fan-to-radiator clearance and the end carbs, while getting vacuum, wouldn't come in. I really wasn't disappointed in this since after 18 years, I was finally able to drive it versus only being able to dream about it, which always had me looking for an exhaust shop and having no brakes. The car has run consistent 13.3s at 104 miles an hour at the Pure Stock Drags in Stanton, Michigan, and ran a best of 12.955 at 105.95 at Englishtown back in 2005 on factory-style, redline, bias-ply tires. The car. RM for Roadrunner. 21 is a two-door coupe. M, special order engine. 9 is a 1969. A is the Lynch Road assembly plant. The last six digits are sequential build numbers, as optioned. A4, platinum silver, metallic silver. M6S, medium vinyl bucket seat interior in pewter and black. A12, 446 barrel package. A87, Roadrunner decor package. G11, tinted windows all around. Radio deleted. Forgot to be ordered, actually. For all you number crunchers out there, this is one of 227 RM21M9 automatics built for U.S. shipment. Of those 227, this is the only platinum exterior with pewter bucket seat interior known to exist. In fact, 
It is the only known of all the A12 Roadrunners and Super Bs built. If you know of any others, please let me know because I believe there has to be at least a few others. Found the original owner, Stan Thompson, in November 2014 after petitioning Texas DMV for whatever they may have on the original owner. Didn't take long, couple weeks at most. Got the info on a Friday and by Monday noon, I was talking to Stan. When I cold called Stan in 2014, I really didn't know if I'd hear back, so I was surprised when he did call back so soon. I asked him what he thought when I had left a message on his machine. He said he sat back in his chair, replayed the message, called his wife, and told her, My car found me. Only took him one day to decide to see the car his dad had bought him at the age of 17. The day they bought it, they were actually on their way to Houston to buy a new Corvette, but decided to stop at River Oaks CP, and this Roadrunner was sitting on the showroom floor with an identically colored and equipped Hemi Roadrunner sitting next to it. When I asked Stan why, a 446 barrel and not the Hemi, he said, it was the hood. Through Stan, I found out the original engine expired while passing a stream of cars on the long bridge over the Trinity River area. Had enough speed built up that he was able to coast off the bridge after all the cars that he had passed, passed back by him. Took two months for Chrysler to replace it under warranty. In the meantime, he drove his future father-in-law's 52 Buick straight eight back and forth to school. The car came to Pennsylvania when Stan decided to end his college years in August of 1971 and come to Oil City, Pennsylvania, where him, mom, and dad had come to explore the oil fields and they founded Devonian Resources Incorporated. In November of 1971, while coming through Oil City on Route 8, an elderly gentleman slid through a stoplight with a 65 Ford Galaxy and crashed into the right front corner of Stan's pride and joy. Last time Stan saw it, the car was on a hook headed for the impound lot to eventually be sold off by the insurance company. What did he replace it with? A 1971 six-cylinder four-door Nova. Did Stan try to buy it back? Yes, twice. I turned him down both times and let him know what I have turned down in the past from others. After talking with my friend Galen at 2014 Muscle Car and Corvette Nationals, I did leave Stan knowing that if we could come to an agreement on a price, I, with the blessings from my oldest son, would sell it back to him. It took two weeks to get his text message reply, which stated that while he was pleased to have an opportunity to get it back, he and his wife thought it best to know where it was at, that he'd probably just get into the same trouble he did when he was still a teenager if he had it back. I just think it is so cool to be able to text the original owner. Side note. Had a customer in from Oil City who turned out to be a longtime Mopar man who had a hot tunnel ram 340 and a 71 Dart. He had taken on all comers in the Oil City slash Franklin area and heard about a car over in the Lake Lucy area that would give him a good run for the money. Yes, the Silver Slug. He went searching but didn't find it that night, but did find another liftoff hood car, a six-pack Super B. That one came close, he said, just edging him out by a nose. Owner of the Super B told the Dart Man that the Silver Slug had beaten him every race they ever had. Dart Man never went looking for the Silver Slug again. Thank you. Lawn. Thanks for sending in your story, Lawn. The 1980s and 1990s were great times for buying Mopars. Of course, I was still a youngster, so I didn't experience those times like many of you out there listening have. And $3,800 for an A12 is crazy if you look at the prices today. I couldn't imagine finding one for that cheap ever, like in my wildest dreams. Even the six-barrel setups are fetching, you know, four figures at swap meets and online. It's really cool that yours is such a rare piece. I mean, having an A12 is cool, but having an A4 silver car that may be one of one is absolutely remarkable. I love the story of Stan, the original owner. Um, to choose the A12 instead of the identical Hemi Roadrunner next to it because of the liftoff hood is awesome. I can't blame him one bit. I probably would have done the same thing. The A12s are just awesome cars. They were and are amazing machines. 
It's good to know that you did give Stan an opportunity to get the car back, but that ultimately he let you keep it. That, to me, that sounds like Stan uh, is a good guy, much like yourself, Lon. Thanks for sending in your story, and I really loved the end where you told the story about the silver slug being feared, and uh, that that 71 dart with the hot tunnel ramp 340 uh, decided not to go looking for the silver slug after, you know, the six-pack Super B smoked him. You know, even if it was just by a nose. But that's a really cool story, Lon. I really appreciate you sending it in. It was a pleasure to read and share. I had a lot of fun. Thank you very much. And, you know, to all of you out there listening, I love stories like this. They don't have to be long. They don't have to be short. They just have to be fun Mopar stories. So send them in. I love to hear stories about, you know, projects and cars that you've had since original, cars that you lost and got back, you know, anything related to Mopars. They're I haven't come across one story that anyone has ever sent me where I'm like, oh man, I don't want to read that one. All of them are awesome, and I'm going to share every single one that I've gotten. It's just going to, like I've said this before, it's going to take some time. I still have a stack to go through, so I'm still getting through December submissions. So please bear with me. I will get to your stories, and like I said, I love to share them. So keep sending them in. You can reach me at chris at talkingmopars.com. Send me your stories, and I'll share them on the show. All right, you guys have waited long enough. It's time to tell the little story about my $100 Hemi. When people started putting modern Hemis into classic Mopars, I was really intrigued, to say the least. Looking into the prices of a complete Hemi swap, you know, quickly dismissed that being even a remote possibility for any of my projects, until I actually found an amazing deal on a Gen 3 Hemi on OfferUp, of all places. The ad was for a 2006 5.7 Hemi engine core, and it was only 100 bucks. I was one of the first people to reach out to this guy, and I told him I was a serious buyer with cash on hand, and I was still at work, and I was like, oh man, I hope this thing doesn't get sold. Um, but I, I told him I'd buy it that day after work if he would hold it for me, or whatever the case. I told him I had the cash, I wasn't a looky-loo, and regardless, I wanted the engine. Because in my head, I figure, you know, 100 bucks, you know, worst case scenario... I get the engine and I find out it's a complete, you know, lost cause. It's a boat anchor. That was a $100 risk I was willing to take. You know, he was cool with it and I ended up going to pick up the engine. And to my surprise, it ended up being much more than just the core engine. The story was that he had blown a head gasket and ended up getting a hold of a Hemi swap out of a local wrecking yard and wasn't going to bother with the rebuild of this one. So thinking to myself, okay, Hopefully it's just a blown head gasket and I can just rebuild this thing. You know, maybe even just get away with putting a new head gasket on it or new gaskets on it and call it good. So that's what my mindset was as we were talking about it. That night, I not only left with the Hemi engine itself, but I left with the harness, the ECM, the TCM, the radiator, the fan, valve covers, heads, intake manifold, and a box of random parts, all for a hundred bucks. Once I started tearing the engine down, I discovered that it was a Mopar remanufactured block. So, you know, I did some price checking on it and I'm like, wow, that's like several thousand dollars. But I knew it had to be rebuilt. Thankfully, I know my buddy, Norm Smith from Norm's Automotive and Machine in Snohomish, Washington. The heads are currently at Norm's shop right now getting cleaned up. And I'm going to have him check them out, make sure they're not warped or anything. And I'm actually still debating what to do with this thing. 
By the time I got this, I had already started not only acquiring the parts to do a big block swap in my Dart, but the 451 Stroker was already at norms getting built and machined out. So being in too deep with the big block swap in my Dart, I decided that I eventually wanted to see the Hemi end up in my 1976 D100, uh, the project truck I talked about in an earlier episode. Now, it's just a matter of figuring out how much I want to build this thing. You know, I was originally going to do just a basic rebuild, but now I'm kind of leaning towards a little performance build on it. You know, I'm not exactly sure yet, but I'm open to ideas. You know, what do you guys think? What should I do to this thing? You know, should I just do a basic rebuild or, you know, while it's blown apart, should I take this opportunity to throw some performance parts at it and see what happens? Personally, I'm leaning towards the performance. You know, if it's a part, you know, and I can afford to, why not throw just a little bit of fun stuff at it? You know, I want my little blue truck to be powerful and reliable. You know, it's not a drag truck or anything, but I'd like to see it take on uh, daily driver duties someday, but with a little bit more oomph. Maybe uh, I've heard, I've been on YouTube and I've seen some of the cams that guys are putting in these little 5.7s and they just, they sound all choppy and they really sound good once you uh, wake them up a little bit. So that's what I'm looking into and I'm still weighing all my options. So what do you think I should do? You know, if you have any experience in modern Hemi performance, what can I do to help liven this thing up aside from forced induction, which I'm not completely opposed to, but, you know, I don't want to put all this work in and, you know, put together, you know, a junkyard turbo kit and just blow it to smithereens. You know what I mean? But, you know, maybe, maybe a supercharger down the line or something, but I'm not, I'm not quite sure if I want to do forced induction on this thing, but I definitely want some more power. I'd like to have, 400 wheel horsepower or more would be nice, but that's kind of what I'm thinking. Before we close out this show, I want to mention that my go-to resource since I started looking into these modern Hemi swaps has always been and will always be DIYHemi.com. Blake, the owner of DIY Hemi, he's a modern Hemi swap knowledge powerhouse. He's a guru in these things, and anybody looking into doing this swap should at minimum Visit his website and soak up as much information as you can. And Blake's really good about answering any questions. And if you look online, you know, the G3 Hemi swap groups and places like that, it's weekly (laughs) Blake's name and DIY Hemi is brought up. And for good reason, because he's the guru. You know what I mean? Uh, Anytime I have a question, that's the guy who I immediately think, um, who I immediately think of and you know, if, if you have any, if you're just thinking about it, just go to DIYHemi.com. And if you can't remember, uh, I'll have his website um, in the show details on uh, the podcast. So you can always go there and just check out the links or whatever. And you can find him on Facebook and Instagram at DIYHemi. You're good to go once you get a hold of Blake and DIYHemi, if this is what you're into. I've said it before, I like the old school stuff. You know what I mean? The, you know, the 440s, 383s, 340s, 360s, 400s like mine getting stroked out to 451s. Those are all great. But there's something about a modern Hemi. You know, you get the fuel injection and, you know, oh, here's another thing. So if you get one of these third generation Hemis and maybe you want a carb setup, they do have intake manifolds that you can convert to carburation if you don't want to deal with all the fuel injection stuff. And if you want to make it simple, you can always get that same intake manifold for the carb, 
and get one of the aftermarket um, electronic fuel injection setups, which you know can make the swap a lot easier from what I understand. But I, I haven't decided what I want to do yet with it. Um, I actually reached out to Blake and we were kind of kicking some ideas around. And he was telling me about a fuel injection six-pack setup, which really had me intrigued. So I'm going to look into that a little bit. I think that would be fun to have a fuel-injected six-pack. That'd be pretty cool. You know, I'm open to ideas. So if you have any ideas for me, you know, you can reach out to me on Facebook, Instagram, or hit me up at my email, which is chris at talkingmopars.com. Let me know what you think I should do with this Hemi. I'm leaning towards, you know, no forced induction right now, just a mild build. And I'm really thinking about the fuel injection setup, but I'm not quite sure what I want to do. I really don't like the plastic intake manifolds, but you know, I'm kind of just talking out of my butt here because I really don't know much about the modern Hemis admittedly, but I'm always learning. And like I said, DIYHemi.com. Don't forget it. Go check it out and learn as much as you can. For more information about this podcast or to listen and subscribe to the show, please visit TalkingMopars.com. That's also a simple way to help me spread the word about this podcast. And shout out to my buddy Norm Smith from Norm's Automotive and Machine in Snohomish, Washington. If you have any work that you need done and you're local to me um, in the Washington area, maybe you want to build a 451 stroker like me. Maybe you need some machine work done. Or some basic, maybe you just don't have time to work on your own car, maybe your daily driver or something like that. Go visit Norm's Automotive and tell him I sent you. Norm's a great guy. I trust him with all my stuff. I just don't have time to do a lot of the work myself. And why would I even try when I have a buddy who's a professional? You know, 30 plus years being a technician, you know, says a lot. And like I said, he's a great guy. I like Norm. You can find him at normsautomotiveandmachine.com. Also, shout out to my buddy Blake from DIYHemi.com. He's a good buddy, and I'm pretty sure he's listening to this. So what's up, Blake? And that really wraps it up for this week's episode of Talking Mopars. Um, You know, here's something that's kind of funny. I always thought it would be funny. If you're 21 years or older, I always thought it would be funny to have a drinking game for this podcast where anytime I say, the word Mopar, or a lot of people say, um, uh, they use but a lot. I use, you know, <laughs> I say, you know, quite a bit. So a fun drinking game. And I don't suggest doing this because you will be nine sheets to the wind is, you know, take a drink every time you hear me say the word Mopar or, you know, or, I have this thing where I like to say, I've said before, <laughs> you know, I've said it before, you know, that, that would be a fun drinking game with your friends, but try it with some soda or something. Cause I don't want you guys all hammered listening to this podcast. All right. Just kidding guys. It was fun this week. It's always fun every week. And I hope you join me next week. So that's it. I am your host, Chris Albrecht. And that was talking Mopars. Thank you for listening to Talking Mopars, your direct connection to all things Mopar. Until next time, remember, no Mopar left behind.